the heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to Season 5 of the Wine Crush Podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Welcome everybody to Wine Crush Podcast. It is Season 5, Episode 2 the first Legends series of what we're doing. So welcome to our studio in beautiful downtown McMinnville, even though it is raining and yucky outside, but it's warm and cozy in here. So today we have Left Coast Estates with us, um, otherwise known as Left Coast Cellars, Left Coast Wines, Left Coast, just wine. So anyways, welcome Taylor, you are with us first. Thank you for joining us. You've been kind of the guinea pig on this and we're really excited to have you here. Awesome, thank you for having us. When we're talking about legends, um, at least in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, pioneers, people who've been in the industry, people that are doing something innovative, interesting, wonderful. And you were one of the first ones that came to mind because of your agriculture, the way you're working the land, the wines, of course, and everything else. But we need to start with the story. Let's start where, you know, we spent about two hours together on the ATV kind of cruising the property and heard lots about, you know, how your family started, why they started, and I'm going to kind of give it over to you to kind of give us the background. Sure. So I'm uh, Taylor Pfaff, obviously. I'm the CEO of Left Coast Cellars, or Left Coast Estate, or Left Coast Wines. Um, And I guess the story really began with my parents. I'm second generation, and it began with kind of a, a dream of theirs that started in Paris, and that was where they really kind of fell in love and also were exposed to food and wine for the first time in a real kind of deeper level. So they moved back to the U.S. to have their children, and they always had this dream of starting a vineyard and winery, but we never thought it was a real dream or something that could be taken seriously. Fast forward about 14 years, they sat down meeting my siblings. We were all teenagers, and they were like, we're doing it. We're starting a winery in Oregon. And at the time, we lived in Colorado, so we just laughed at them. We thought it was hilarious. We were like, you guys, you don't have any experience in farming or agriculture. My dad's like, well, I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, and it wasn't that relatable, so we thought it was quite funny. But um, they did it. They purchased the land that's become Left Coast in 2003. Back then, it was um, basically a reservoir and about 15 acres of vineyards and then a single steel building. So at the time, we didn't really know if we had a good vineyard site. Um, My dad actually blind called David Lett, and he answered the phone and was really kind and actually gave him his kind of candid thoughts on what he thought of our site. So that was definitely encouraging. But um, we still didn't really know anything about what we were able to do. So we put all of our early years and focus on vineyards and vineyard development and trying to get a good reputation and handle on growing grapes. It's interesting. I mean, when we talk about pioneers and talking about, you know, where you were at, because you are in what's now the Van Duzer Corridor, which at the time was kind of no man's land for the wine industry. And so choosing that particular site, I mean, did they have some insight? Did they have a gut feeling? What was the, or was it just available? Um, so they had actually purchased a property in Santa Barbara, but, um, they felt really uncomfortable with it because of the water situation there. It's all on well water and everyone's pulling out of the same wells. So you have no certainty of if you're going to have water in 20 years. 
So um, they decided to sell that property and they um, had to identify, you know, replacement properties. And my dad did all of that legwork. So he was all over California and Oregon. And he'd basically take my mom there and be like, what do you think of this place? And she vetoed basically everything he could come up with. And our current property was the last place that he took her and he thought she wouldn't like it because it is kind of out of the way and it's not super close to Portland or any of the major cities. No shame on McMinnville, but, um, it was, it's, it was little and it's still little. I mean, for, I mean, when you compare it to Portland or Salem or Eugene for that matter, or I mean, when you're talking about Napa or San Francisco, it's, it's little, it's rural, but growing, but growing. Yeah. Yes. So when she saw what became Lefka, she was just amazed at how beautiful the property is. The big reservoir is certainly stunning. And um, we've got really nice little set of hills in the Van Duzer corridor, very rolling, very beautiful. So she just kind of love at first sight, and that's what started starting this out. I want to talk a little bit about Van Duzer before we kind of get into the rest of, you know, kind of the agriculture and how you guys are farming and all the other projects that you're involved in. What is so special about that area? I mean, it's become its own AVA just recently, but there's something very special about that area that makes the grapes and the grape growing um, situate you know situations different than some of the others. Yeah, so the Van Duzer corridor is extremely important to the entire Oregon wine industry. It's the only gap in the coastal foothills. So without that, we wouldn't get big marine airflow in. And what that gives us is our temperature differentiations. So the Van Duzer corridor is essentially the air conditioner for the valley. And um, that marine airflow gives us cold air every night. It cools off the valley, even on the hot days. Um, you know, we still get down into the 60s, 70s. Um, and that's even more true where we're at. We get all the wind that comes through the pass, hits the Van Duzer corridor, kind of rolls over those hills, hits the Olamity Hills, and then gets spread north and south into the valley. So just incredibly important in terms of keeping us as a cool climate region. Without that, we'd probably be growing Cabernet and be more like Walla Walla in terms of climate. And then in terms of its effect on left coast, those high wind flows are really helpful for preventing disease and um, also helping thicken our skins a little bit because the grapes, you know, they live their whole life in this very windy environment. So it adds a little bit more tannin structure. It's amazing what those Van Duzer winds do because I live up on Eola Hills and you can almost always count on them about two or three in the afternoon on the summer nights to kind of just cool everything off. And it's it's really looked forward to, especially when we got a hundred degree heat to have those kind of pop up and move things around. So Anyhow, I get excited with my hands sometimes and we move things. <laughs> so the one thing I loved when I was up there is we talked about kind of how Left Coast started with those 15 acres and the rolling hills and the reservoir. And where you're at now is nowhere near where you started. So how many acres under vine do you have? You know, what are we growing? But then I want to talk about the other projects because you're not just vineyard. You've got some other kind of interesting, unique, and very um, ecologically moving forward projects that um, most people don't even realize are even a thing. So the property today is 490 acres with 142 acres of vineyards. So we've had a ton of growth, but it happened very slowly over time. As we kind of grew, we really started to realize that what's so special about Left Coast is 
not the people or the family, but it's really the estate itself, the climate, the terroir. And for us, that's really encompassing of the entire property and all the different aspects of it. So that really kind of started our interest in things beyond vineyards. A huge part of it is ecological with the oak forest restoration that we look at, but also trying to treat the property like a working farm and grow a little bit of food for the cafe. We have some livestock. We have a truffle project as well. There's a lot of kind of unique characteristics to the property, and we really see those as attributes. So we try and develop the property as much as we can and have things be complementary rather than just being like, oh, we're a vineyard and winery. Only we think that, you know, if we can do things to preserve the ecological property or the ecological characteristics of the property, it'll do a lot to actually improve wine quality and improve biodiversity. Very nicely said. Yeah. I We talked about this kind of in the office the last couple of days, and I'm like, I don't know, Taylor's got to explain it because the way I did it just butchered it all to pieces. So very eloquent. The one thing that I really um, glommed onto recently was the inoculation of your trees with truffles. And I didn't know that was a thing. And I know we talked about it a little bit, and you explained to me what it is, and you we kind of pointed them out as we kind of drove by them at high speed. So can you kind of talk about that? I didn't even know that you could do that. Uh, truffles to me are like this hidden gem that you have to have a pig or a dog or something to find. So you guys are doing something completely different. Yeah, for us, it's very experimental, and we are by no means the leader of truffle cultivation in Oregon. Um, we actually haven't harvested anything at a commercial scale, but it is definitely doable, and there are some great producers in Oregon doing it. The concept is, is you take a baby tree, a sapling, and you inoculate the root systems with the truffle spores and fungus. And then you plant that tree and you let it grow to maturity. And as it grows, it's going to expand its root systems. And if you can keep the climactic conditions right for the truffles, they will multiply and eventually they'll fruit and they'll create the actual truffle that we would want. We haven't done the management practices quite as aggressively as we should to induce that fruiting, but it's definitely possible. So, And you're using hazelnut trees. And you explained to me before we got too close, they don't look like regular hazelnut trees. They look like hairy bushes, I think is what you kind of how you described it. Because the way you're pruning them, you're not pruning them up and out. They're kind of, explain it, please, because I'm, again, butchering it and making it my way and not really the way it should be. Yeah, so there's a number of species that can host the truffle fungus. Um, the best one is apparently oak trees, but oak trees are incredibly slow growing. So if you were to plant a baby oak and hope it to get to maturity, you'd be either dead or a very old person by the time that happened. So we used hazelnut trees or filberts. They're much faster growing. You know, They only take about seven years to get more mature in size. And then we're not cultivating them for hazelnut production. So there's no male trees, so they're not getting pollinated, so there's no nuts. So it's very different from a traditional hazelnut orchards that you're used to seeing. The root system essentially mirrors kind of what the canopy looks like. So there's a lot of pruning that we do to create a kind of more bushy structure. And the hope is that that'll create a bigger root system, which would be more habitat for the truffles. So interesting. Who knew? 
Yeah. I didn't even know truffles existed until I moved to McMinnville. <laughs> so, you know, the farm girl in me didn't didn't know. So now we do. You had mentioned oak trees and the fact that they grow so slowly. And you have one of the coolest programs up there with the oak um, restoration program. And you explained it in a way that I had never heard. I didn't understand the history. I didn't understand, you know, how it really affected the rest of the ecology around it. So I want everybody to really know what that is and why it's important and kind of your whole process and what you're doing. Sure. So um, we're really lucky in that we have a lot of Oregon white oak trees. And when we kind of started out, our tasting room is set amongst them. And my parents just thought, oh, these are really pretty trees. It's a very nice park-like setting. So we kind of preserved them and then focused our vineyard development on other aspects of the property that were already clear. And as we were kind of going through that process, we were always trying to kind of beat back the invasive underbrush that's taking over a lot of the forest, you know, in a lot of Oregon, if you look into the forest, especially in the western part of the valley, you'll just see this dense thicket of blackberries. It was at that, around that time, this was probably 2015, 2016, um, we were fortunate enough to meet Chris Seal over at U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And um, he was the kind of main factor in teaching us about the ecological importance of these oak trees. They're incredibly slow growing, like I mentioned earlier, of mature oak tree, like the size that we have outside there would probably be about a hundred years old. Um, and the really old ones can get up to four or 500 years old. So there's not a lot left in the valley. There's only 3% of the historic range that used to exist. So it's a very threatened species. And because of how slow growing they are, it's really challenging to create new oak habitat because you need a multi-generational effort so most of the oak that exists today is on public lands or on scattered private properties like our vineyard, for example. So when we realized how important they were, we started looking into uh, what are options that we can do to try and kind of preserve this habitat and not only preserve it, but restore it to its pre kind of native condition. So we work with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Partners Program to manage about 40 acres at the center of the property. And that kind of got us into the swing of grant writing and working with governmental agencies to try and work with this. So we work for and with NRCS as well. And all told, we have about 100 acres of oak forest under various phases of restoration. And that involves clearing out all the underbrush, creating this kind of savanna, and then also doing a bunch of seeding with the native understory as well. So it really kind of, one, made oaks identifiable part of our property and part of the identity for the property. And then two, it um, also became a big part of our mission and that, you know, it immediately made about 20% of the property kind of a wildlife refuge. And I think it's incredibly valuable. And I think vineyard owners can start looking at that forested land as an asset rather than something that they could just cut down and turn into vineyards. And one last plug on it, you can see I'm wearing an oak shirt by coincidence, but uh, my wife organizes a 5K, 10K run every year that we do on the property. It's really cool. It winds you through the whole estate and through all the restoration areas, and that's our primary funding mechanism. So all the entries go into oak forest restoration, as well as all the food and wine bought that day. So Yeah. 
I remember you telling me that and just was, yeah. One, I don't want to ever run up there because there's way too many hills <laughs> and it's way too long and I'm just probably way too lazy and too out of shape, but it is so beautiful up there. It is so worth running. The one thing with the oak restoration that you had mentioned that I didn't know was the history with the Native Americans and why they grew the savannas the way they did and the different animals and bugs and, and things that were in that. And from what I understand, you're trying to bring all of that back to where it kind of supports itself in the grand circle of things. Yeah, so that's really cool. And there is a 5K walk, so <laughs> I suspect you could walk up the hills. I'm not committing to that either. <laughs> I can do that, but I'm not committing to that either. Okay, let's talk vineyards. So the oak trees, obviously, um, and the restoration and the rest of you doing the property affect the vineyard. We know that there's about 140 acres under vine, but we never did talk about the varietals and what you're actually growing up there. And it is Left Coast Estate. So does that mean that you're using all the fruit off your estate for what you're growing or producing? Yeah, and for specifics on vineyards, we should really let Joe speak to that. Okay. Joe's our winemaker and viticulturalist, and he's fantastic, so he can speak to details. But yeah, everything that we do at Left Coast is all growing on our estate. We really believe that that's a huge impactor in terms of quality and making wines with purpose. Well, I think that is a great way to take a break. And we're going to switch over to Joe here in a few minutes, switch up the mics. We also have I think empty glasses around the room. So we're going to move to the next wine and we'll be right back. Glasses are full. It's time to talk about wine. Taylor said that you are the vineyard guy, so you need to answer the questions about the vineyard that I'd asked him. So let's start with the vineyard, because without the vineyard, there's no wine, and great yep. wine starts in the vineyard, correct? So, Precisely. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about the vineyard, you know, what you're growing, you know, the estate, kind of the whole overview of what you're doing up there, and then mm -hmm. we'll start talking about wine. Yeah, sounds good. So, hey, everybody. I'm Joe Wright, by the way. Oh, by the way, this is Joe Wright. He's the winemaker <laughs> at Left Coast Estates. I forgot that part. I was so excited about talking about wine. Details. I eh, details of what is it. Okay, Joe, show's yours. Yeah, so you and Taylor had already discussed we're farming about 142 acres. And what does that entail? Um, a handful of red rattles, a handful of white rattles. So with regards to reds, obviously, our primary uh, focus is on Pinot Noir, um, and also we have a little bit of Pinot Meunier, actually quite a, a good amount of it. For the Willamette Valley, we've got about six acres of Pinot Meunier um, and uh, Syrah. As far as whites go, we've got the other Pinots, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, um, Chardonnay, of course, and a little bit of Viognier. So let's talk about the Pinot Meunier did I say that right? I don't think I said that right, but you know what I mean. You said it perfect. Did I? I so like you. You're probably one of my favorites right <laughs> well, now. Well, you just gotta you just gotta smear it, you know, a little Pinot Meunier. Yeah. There we go. What is that? Because I would have assumed it was white. I don't know why I would have assumed that would a white wine. But you've also said Syrah, which we are a cool climate, which is not typically known for Syrah. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. let's address both of those and what they are and why. Yeah, well, um, Meunier, like I believe Blanc and Gris are mutations of Noir. So 
simply put, you know, one day somewhere in the world, somebody was walking through their Pinot Noir vineyard and found something that was a little different this year than it was the year before and noticed it and let it bear fruit and tasted it and liked it. And so all you have to do is take a clipping of that stick and then start propagating it. So Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Meunier, these are all kind of the children of the noble noir. Okay. Well, that's a, I think that's a good explanation. So it's, it's kind of the, or it's the origin as far as where it's most popular is in um, Champagne. It's one of the three noble grapes used in blending in Champagne for Champagne sparkling wine. Okay. That makes sense. We use it for that. Um, We use it not primarily, pretty evenly across the board for sparkling wine. We make a brut rosé out of it, Um, a still red wine as well. And most years, not always. And it's a big, uh, it's a primary component of our rosé blend as well. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know if I've seen that varietal in a rosé, I don't think yet. It's usually, you know, it's either Pinot Noir or I've seen the Syrah or I've seen a Tempranillo or I've seen, but not a Pinot Meunier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the kind of arose after our white Pinot Noir program became so popular, I think that I really, you know, often, even though our white Pinot Noir is white, not pink, the question would arise like, what, why, how is this not a, ro- a Pinot Noir rose or blancish rose? And anyway, so it was a way to really differentiate, I guess, our white Pinot Noir program to our rose program. And I think you can make, quite personally, a really more interesting rose by blending just these cool varietals. And again, they're all under that in that umbrella, right? So, oh, I didn't mention. So the rosé blend is Pinot Meunier, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Blanc. And it just makes way better, more interesting, more complex rosé, if you will. I think a lot of people like to not think about rosé maybe when they're drinking it. It's just fun and drinkable and and crisp and refreshing. But I like to think a little bit about it. And that, that process makes for more interesting wine. So you've now like totally like pimped out this rosé and you did not bring any of it. <laughs> so I'm not sure who failed that one, but we have another date somewhere down yeah, the line where enough. we're going to try that out. Okay. Okay. So we've totally like hashed out the rosé. We know what goes in it. We know, you the know, Meunier, the um, Meunier yep, and, and the and Noir and the whatever else. Let's focus back on the Syrah. Syrah, yeah. Syrah is typically a warm weather grape, typically. I mean, I think that's what you typically think it of, you know, what, whether it's Eastern Washington, Southern Oregon, California, whatever, it's usually, to me, it's a warm weather grape. But there's more, it seems like, Syrah being grown up here, which is considered cool weather, I would assume. Yeah, fair enough. But I think you, you, you forgot to mention the Rhone in France. I don't know that. I haven't been there. So I can't, like, put that in my, like travel log yet that yeah. I've been there and I know what's going on. Yeah, well, I mean, that's origin. And, and he, I don't know about its origin. I think it was somewhere in the Middle East, quite frankly. But a great growing region for Syrah is in the Northern Rhone. And those are very dark, concentrated Syrahs, but very acid-driven. And they can be floral and just a little more lifted than, I'm going to say, like a more cloying, warm climate Syrah. Okay, so speaking of the Rhone, is that considered cool weather, kind of like where we're at? Depends. Or? It's big, so it's kind of like you're killing me here. Yeah, I'm well, trying there, to, like, so there's focus the southern in end of it, okay. and there's the northern okay. end of it, and so the northern end's cooler than the southern end's warmer. Okay, God. okay, you're like we're moving me all over the place, and I'm trying to like map it in my brain, and it's just not. 
I'm, I'm getting it. I'm, I'm there. So with this raw you have here, what are you considering that then? More of a cool climate, northern Ronish. I hate to like compare to, you know, the old world, but yeah, northern Ronish, more acid-driven Syrah. Yeah, not like Washington, California, wherever. So let's talk about the characteristics of that and mm -hmm. how it expresses itself and what you're doing with it. Are you doing just a straight red with it or are you blending it into other things or what is your whole philosophy and theory on the Syrah? Good question. Thank you. Um, we don't have a lot of it on the estate. We already touched on the 142 acres. I've got two blocks that are half an acre each of Syrah, one acre of Syrah. I make a couple hundred cases a year. I also mentioned it's kind of a counterpart, the Viognier, another Rhone varietal. And uh, we do co-ferment a little bit of the Viognier with the Syrah. Um, we've kind of settled in. I've been in both extremes, anywhere from like 1% and 2 and 3% co-fermented in the Syrah to upwards of uh, nine because you have to stay under that 10% varietal. Well, actually, I think for those varietals, it's 25% or 20. But but anyway, we've been up high, high in the nine to 10 range of co-fermentations, but we settle in pretty much in the 5% range. And so there's apparently an enzyme in the skins of the Viognier that help extract anthocyanin or color pigment from the skins of the Syrah. So a little bit of Viognier in the Syrah Fermentation helps to extract a little more meat, let's just say, from the Syrah varietal. And then also actually adds a really nice floral component, just a more lifted, slightly more white, fruit-driven um, aroma. I don't even know where to go with that. Yeah. yeah, other than it sounds amazing, and I you didn't bring any of that either. So <laughs> I guess that is date number two up at the estate. I guess you can't, when you have the lineup that you guys have, I guess you can't bring one of everything, right? You have to bring I, the. This was a, yeah, we, I, I counted, typically I bought, we bought almost 30 different, over, just over 30 different wines a year. It's pretty crazy. When I, let's, I want to divert left for a second. When we're talking about case count. Because, uh, huh? Left. I want to go right. Yes. <laughs> I am a lefty, but we're going to go right. I don't know. We're going to go whatever direction we go. But what's your case count a year approximately on average? Uh, this year, it's 21,000 cases. That's a lot of cases. Because Taylor and I just had a production meeting yesterday, and I need to know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was all good timing then. So Syrah is probably one of those small, it's a very small percentage of what you do. And I can't ask you to bring one of everything if you have 30 different SKUs, varieties, or bottlings. Yes. So, but this gives you reasons to go up to the estate Precisely. again. Yes. There we go. I've beat you up over the things you didn't bring. So let's talk about what you did bring because we've, we have three different wines that you brought today. Oh my God, I held up four fingers. So you guys can't see that, but I held up four fingers when I actually meant three. So let's talk about what you did bring, because that is a big component of your overall lineup, I believe, and they've been delicious so far. We haven't gotten to the Pinot Noir, but that's next. Yeah, so we started with the, the Queen Bee, sparkling wine, correct? Oh, I've, that was Four Fingers. I was right. Yeah. I forgot that we started with the sparkling first, yes. Okay. Yeah, so that's a really fun project. So let's just start by saying, unlike our more traditional method champenois production of uh, sparkling wine at Left Coast Cellars, we also make a slightly earlier release sparkling wine color, Queen Bee Bubbly. And uh, ultimately, we have to pick an area from the vineyard that can hang long enough and not accumulate a lot of sugar to generate 
the right chemistry for a base wine, for a sparkling wine, because we want to retain a lot of acidity, right? But we want to have physiological ripeness. We want flavors. We don't just want to taste green herbal stuff, which you typically get at low bricks. So we look for these sites. We pick them accordingly. We bring them in for our different sparkling wine projects. This particular wine comes from our uh, field of dreams. Uh, it's the Badensville clone of Pinot Noir. It's grown in a just kind of a deeper swale. It's got deeper soils, which makes for bigger clusters, bigger barriers, berries, juicier clusters. And, and it just, because it sits heavier, it takes a little more time to uh, like get accumulate sugar. So anyway, those are kind of all the, and then there's 20 other reasons, but that's why we pick that area for sparkling wine. We bring that in we ferment it and we make a base wine. It's a very low pH, high acid-driven base wine. That goes into a tirage bottling, which in essence means that we then add sucrose to that base wine, then we bottle it and we put a cap on it and then it re-ferments in the bottle and that's what gives us our sparkling. We don't use sucrose for the queen bee. We actually use estate honey. You, and Taylor talked about a couple different like kind of peripheral projects on the estate, but one of them is that we're beekeepers too. And we sell honey in the tasting room, but we also produce honey to add that sugar to our base wine to re-ferment in the bottle. And it makes really distinct sparkling wine. It kind of adds, I'd say unlike, well, it's just a more savory character to a sparkling wine than our other traditional ones, but really cool project, a lot of fun. I'm glad you hit on that because that was one thing I missed with Taylor earlier with the gardens and the bees and all that stuff. So that was a good a good add-in because I had missed that and I maybe would have circled back later, but we will probably circle back later because we're going to talk about the kind of the cafe and the tasting room and stuff. And I'm glad you said that it was infused in there because I had said that on video and um, then doubted myself after I said it. So that was that was good. Yeah. Chardonnay. Chardonnay is one of those things that Kind of, it seemed like it kind of, you know, waved out of, you know, popularity, and now all of a sudden it's back, and you have the Oregon, you know, version of Chardonnay. This is delicious. Thanks. Yeah, you're you're right. Now I don't know how far back you're thinking of, but certainly when I rolled in the mid '90s, there was a lot of Chardonnay production taking place, and there are going to be, you know, plenty of people that agree, but plenty of people that disagree with this. But my take on it back then, and I think the reason it kind of took a back seat was because I think what we were comparing it to were, you know, warm climate Chardonnays, like the ones grown down in California, of course, which there's nothing wrong with everything has time and place, but, but it, it just wasn't working in our cool climate in the Willamette Valley, in my opinion. And so I think what we've, what's happened now, you say that it's kind of taken stage again in the last seven or eight years, we're growing cool climate Chardonnay now, and we're making cool climate Chardonnay out of it and not trying to bend the will of it and make it into something that it isn't. So, and I think just embracing that, nothing but good can come of it. I want to talk about the difference between what California Chardonnay is versus what traditionally Oregon has kind of moved to because it's a different ideology. It's a different way of making it. It's just, it's, there's a lot of differentiations. Like, I don't have a great palate, but I can definitely tell the difference between more of a California-type um, Chardonnay versus what Oregon has become, you know, in the in the last couple of years that I have been really kind of around wine. Yeah. 
So can you talk a little bit about that and kind of maybe what the different strategies are on that and why we're doing things different? Yeah, well, I hate to put a blanket statement over, you know, California and, you know, but the bulk, the majority of it certainly is bigger, richer, riper, you know, more wood, a lot of mallow. And, you know, with that, you get a lot of malic acid. And as a result, you you get a lot of lactic in it. They're just more buttery and all that. Again, that's a huge generalization. Um, there are some fantastic Chardonnay sites throughout, you, you know, that you got to just know your vineyards. So that's, you know, my take on, I guess, the bulk of what we see that's so easily available to us in Oregon um, from that area. In Oregon, we are basically just starting to just pick at lower sugars, lower pHs, higher bricks. But they're not so incredibly acid-driven because I I think a lot of us are letting them go through malic as well. So even though we're picking at a almost in some cases, these are extreme cases like base wine, like sparkling wine chemistry, the uh, allowing the wine to go through a malolactic, allowing the wine to um, sit on elevage for upwards of 18 to 24 months in new wood, but lightly toasted wood. And in a lot of cases, larger formats. So the amount of surface area is like typically a lot less than a traditional barrel. We've just, I think, come up with a really cool formula for like acid-driven, rich, but incredibly varietally expressive Chardonnay. And they're like, again, I, I do this and I say I hate I, to do this, but I still do this. I compare, but you know, they're, we're, they're more like Chibli, the great Chardonnays of Burgundy. You're going to have to explain that because you completely, I don't know what that means. Um, what part? The Chablis versus the Chardonnay or the Chardonnay in Oregon versus oh, the Chablis. Just ultimately the end result. The end wine is more like that. It's they're they're acid driven, but they're incredibly expressive. They're still rich because they've 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 lived in wood. Yeah, they've softened because of the elevage, they've the microoxidation in barrels, everything's like they're acid driven, but they're plush and they're rich and they're varietally expressive. Okay. That makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. I'm I'm with you now. So again, I've not been to France and over there, so I don't, I wish I had that experience to be able to really understand and that's coming. That's mm-hmm. a that's a future project once we can all travel a little bit more freely. So um, let's talk about the kind of the, I guess, the king of wines in Oregon, which is Pinot, and we have not touched on the Pinot Noir and the red. Let's, everybody's growing Pinot. So why is it different at Left Coast? What are you doing different that makes it stand apart and be its own thing? Gotcha. Well, really, I'm not doing anything different at all. Um, you and Taylor touched already on the vineyard site. That's just it. All I do is kind of usher it along thereafter. So I'm I'm at a, a long time ago. So prior to 2010, when I started making the wine there, I actually sourced the fruit from from le- sourced fruit from Left Coast for about four years. So I really got to know the vineyard in another winery and another cellar. I mean, the reason I'm at Left Coast is I believe in the vineyard site and the people are great too, trust me. But the vineyard site, the dirt, the microclimate, it's like no other. You can't replicate it anywhere else. Better, you know, some people love it. Some people don't love it as much, whatever. But I, that's why I'm there. So is for that, again, the terroir. So I'm not doing anything. I mean, I am. I'm good at making wine, but a lot of people are. What we're really doing is just trying to let that site express itself as best we can. So it's not touching 
understanding really basic primary things about winemaking, but keeping a very hands-off approach in the winery. Every time you touch the wine, every time you look at the wine, you've added a veil in between its basic character and maybe what you think it should be. So the less you can touch it and, and manipulate it in the winery, the more expressive it'll be of where it's grown. I love hearing that, you know, with, with winemakers and also, you know, whether it's the owners or whatever, when you're talking about the terroir and letting it really express itself. And not everybody really, I think, fully understands what that means. But when you're starting to taste wines that are from similar areas, maybe are done in a similar manner, but completely different flavors, different characteristics, different, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, aromas, whatever, you can really taste and feel and understand what the terroir is and how it expresses in the wine. Yeah, yeah. There, this has been done over and over and over again. I had some friends um, down the Central Coast, and at that time, then in Napa, and then in Oregon, that for three years, three wineries swapped out fruit three ways, and everybody made those three wines for three years from all the three different areas every year for three years. Anyway, you get it. It was called the Cube Project. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> and yeah, ultimately the the takeaway was um, terroir. I've heard it so many different ways. Some people think it's BS that it's just dirt is dirt, and you know grapes are grapes, and wherever you know whatever you do with them, it is it is what it is. But I think you know, and I don't know if it's just Oregon, and I really don't think it is. I think you know it goes back to France. You know, I'm sure it's everywhere in the world that terroir, that weather, what Mother Nature you know produces that year really changes, you know, what happens that year. I mean, that's the beauty of wine. It's, you know, I've heard it so many times. It's a time capsule in a bottle, and it really identifies a place, a time, and what really happened in that annual period when it started growing and when it actually started, you know, was harvested and put into production. Yeah, totally. And it's not just grapes, right? It's strawberries, it's peaches, it's pears, it's apples, it's, um, we all have our favorite strawberries grown in the Salinas Valley or our favorite peaches grown in the Grand Mesa or, you know, like it's, it's, Mm -hmm. that's all terroir. Absolutely. in agriculture. Agriculture is amazing thing. And so many people don't understand it. They've never been around it. They just go to the grocery store, they pick up whatever is there, they put it in the bag and they just call it good. But when you really start getting into these nuances and these places and these, you know, and really the people that have the passion behind what is being grown, it is an amazing thing. It's magical, really, in a lot of different respects. Agreed. Yes. Well, I'm glad you agree. <laughs> yes. What other wines are you guys doing up there? What other things that we should know, at least on the wine front, before we stop, refill the glasses again? Because we got Pinot Noir going into the glasses. And um, we'll stop and finish up the last segment. Um, well, I mean, certainly something that we've created, and, and it's been a while now. It's been about 10 years, but two Pinot Noir and Red you know, the obvious red, you know, we make a lot of white Pinot Noir as well at Left Coast. It's incredibly popular. It's distributed all over the U.S. and throughout Canada. And isn't that the Aldi order too? It's going to the U.K. Yeah, so it's all over the U.K. Yowza. and Ireland as well. The anyway, white Pinot was really good. That's what we started with, yeah. correct? Right? Yeah. Yes, it was really know. good. I didn't have that one, sorry. Shame on you. But you've also <laughs> been barreling and doing all the production things, so you might be a little bit wined out for, for a little while. Um, so we'll excuse you just a little bit. Yeah, but but a great wine. Yes, so, it was um, beautiful. We, um, obviously, again, 142 acres. We've got a handful of acres, like everybody does uh, in their vineyards, that 
aren't ideal every year, you know, like fence lines, tree lines, swales, deeper swales. What I mean, like instead of again, trying to make decent red wine out of, we're just culling all this stuff and, and making wonderful white wine out of it. And anyway, it's a big part of our portfolio. Uh, we believe in it. It's wonderful wine. It's acid driven. It's clean. It's crisp, refreshing, kind of summery, you know, backyard barbecue wine, but it's still Pinot Noir. It still has complexity and and it makes you think about it just a little of course as a result so um you know just yeah tell your listeners you know try it it's it's delicious as well it makes as good a white as red and the diversity is wonderful too i mean every time we talk about what are we going to plant you know it's like well let's just plant more pinot some would think they'll have more red well no we can make white wine we can make sparkling wine we can make rosé i mean this is oregon let's let's just yeah this is the one we're embracing you kind of have a whole gamut of things you can do with it, yeah. which is actually pretty incredible because it is more of a sensitive grape, Pinot Noirs. I think to grow, the skins are thinner. There's a little bit more um, expression as far as that terroir that we are talking about. Yeah. So it's really pretty incredible um, mm. agricultural product just in general. Agreed. Yes. Well, again, ag agreed. I'm so glad <laughs> we're getting along here because this is working really well. I do want to move and refill glasses because I see a lot of emptiness out in our little audience here. So um, let's put a pause right there. We'll um, take a quick break and we'll come back with kind of the finality. Thanks. Yeah. Let's finish up with talking a little bit more about the estate and the experiences that you have up there, things that people can really go up and um, do while they're up enjoying the wines. But the biggest thing that we did an event there, and you probably didn't even know this because we didn't talk about this, but I think it was about four years ago we did a, a it's called Vinay and Me, and we went up to the, the estate and did wine and a tour and food and whatever else. But the garden program up there and what you were growing up there and doing and then serving in your little restaurant was actually so impressive. Yeah, so for us, um, growing our own food is important because it's something that we can do pretty easily on the farm site. And then uh, just a couple years ago, we built a high tunnel as well, which was really nice because it extended our growing season by about 90 days, a month and a half on either end of the season. And having a cafe was also important to us because when we started out back in 2008, when we opened the cafe, there really wasn't much in terms of good food options nearby. So you either had to come up here to McMinnville or you had to go out to Salem. So we wanted to, you know, offer people food as a reason to stay and come out to kind of our little neck of the woods. And then it's just kind of fed off itself from there. You know, you can really taste the difference in quality in terms of fruit when you or vegetables when you eat it, you know, literally off the vine or off the plant, fresh harvested. Um, and then, you know, it's also obviously much more sustainable and just kind of a fun, fun farm vibe that we like to keep going. Talking about farm vibe, you and I went into the new property to see the new plantings and other things. Maybe this is a secret, but you had this cool thing that you're doing down in the new area of the property. And I think that's on the south end of the property with the old barn and the beautiful oaks and everything down there. 
Is there any big plans for anything down there? Um, yeah, so that was the most recent expansion we did of Left Coast. It is to the south of us. There was a very old historic house and barn. Um, that property is really cool. It dates all the way back to the Independence Oregon Trail terminus. So people would arrive there and they'd be in Oregon and they'd get land. And that was one of the original properties. So it's got a ton of heritage. We've planted about 10 acres of Pinot Noir and then another four acres of Gris and actually a little bit more Pinot as well. So we're going to spend about the next 10 years planting that with vineyards. And um, we hope to be able to expand some of our hospitality services over there. But it's kind of a, a race against time with this barn because it's very old. It might fall over. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> We it's, can always resalvage it and build something similar to it. It's a pretty cool barn. And I know you had said that people had kind of, you know, helped themselves to the wood when nobody was looking, and which is really unfortunate. But it's really just a really great piece of the property to experience and enjoy. So I hope it sticks around. Oh, it, it'll be there in some capacity. <laughs> Perfect. Um, let's talk about the restaurant and the cafe. Because even I live fairly close and didn't realize you were operating as much as you were and with the menu that you were. So what's on the menu? Um, what's, you know, do you change it every week? Is it something that's like a monthly? Um, let's talk about that because people need to come out and eat. They need to come out and drink. Joe's beautifully explained all the wines. And so now we got to pair some food with it. Yeah. So food is always important with wine. Biggest thing we're known for is wood-fired pizzas. So we got a big Forno, Forno Bravo pizza oven. Um, and we actually had to expand the tasting room because this oven was so big it wouldn't fit anywhere near inside. So we built a little addendum to fit this thing in. Um, and we've had a ton of success with that. We got the cover of Oregon Wine Press one year. Um, the guys out at the breadboard in Fall City were fantastic and kind of helped us at least get the program rolling. And then um, we've been doing pizzas for seven, yeah, seven years now. So we've been kind of continually refining the menu. Um, in terms of what's available, it's very linked to seasonality. So we try and utilize as much product as we can growing on the estate. And we'll shift it up quite a bit from there. In the weekdays, we typically have soups and paninis too. Perfect. I like both of those. That's yeah. a great reason to come back and eat and drink for that matter. We need to find you. So I've mentioned in the past, it's Rick Real. People hear that and they're like, uh, where? Because it's not a big star on the map, so to speak. So exactly where is the estate? And then how do we find you on social media? Yeah, so Left Coast itself is on Highway 99W. So it's about 30 minutes west of Salem on the 22. And then that intersects the 99W at Rick Real. You go about four miles north of that and we're right there. Any of your listeners from Oregon have probably driven right past us, maybe didn't notice. Um, and then in terms of following along with us, our website is really great. It's www.leftcoastwine.com. And our, all of our handles on social media are also Left Coast Wine. We're on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Easy enough. So we had gone, like I said at the beginning, all the way around that, and it actually gotten an argument on Monday when we were discussing about exactly what it was. So Sammy wins. I hate to say that on the air and give her the credit, but, you know, it is what it is. So um, thank you both, you and Joe, so incredibly much for joining us. Again, kind of being the guinea pig for our first Legend series and joining us in our live audience here. I appreciate all your time, and we'll be back up to drink. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, check you later.
As part of um, our new format here and our new experience, we are going to open up the end of the interview to questions and actually get into the audience and see what you guys have to say and what you want to ask our winemaker and our owner. So who's first? Uh, it was really nice to meet you guys and hear about your story. Uh, I'm just really curious. Are you guys doing any kind of uh, like white and red blends? I've seen some really fun ones around the around the valley, so it'd be fun to see um, or hear if you guys are doing anything fun, uh, some reds and white mix that people aren't typically like seeing around here. I think Joe actually covered most of our blends really well. So the most interesting ones is the Syrah, which we co-ferment with the Viognier, which is a white grape, so fairly unique. Um, and it's in the Cote de Rotis kind of style of the Rhone, as he mentioned. Um, and then the Rosé that we do is very unique as well, being a blend of Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Pinot Blanc. So Taylor, growing up on the farm or moving there as a, what, late teen? Did you end up, like, did you feel you wanted to become a wine grower or winemaker growing up as your parents were going into it? And uh, did you go to school for that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I grew up in Colorado, and uh, my parents purchased Left Coast when I was about 14. And um, I was an avid snowboarder. And so when they told me, I like looked up Oregon, I'm like, oh, that's really close to Mount Hood. So I worked every summer in high school with our vineyard crew. And um, my mom would drop me up at Timberline, and I'd stay there the weekend and camp and snowboard all weekend. So then I went to the University of British Columbia and actually was a professional snowboarder for a little while, but I kept coming back. I worked the first harvest that Joe was our first full-time winemaker in 2011. And that was when I re- kind of realized, oh, this could be a real kind of career because I just love the wine industry because you meet all of these people who are so knowledgeable at kind of every step of the supply chain. So then I ended up going back to school and I got an MBA in um, wine and spirits from Kedge Business School, which was based in Bordeaux. And then I got a lot of great industry knowledge from Joe as well, working in the cellar with him directly for about five years. You had mentioned that you organized this 5K, 10K fundraising run. And I'm assuming that there that it takes place on maybe some trails on your property. Are those accessible to visitors when we come just for tasting? Yeah. So we've got a little trail system. We're working on expanding it. And um, it is seasonal because of how wet the property is. So we typically open it up in Memorial Day, and it's about a mile loop with about 200 feet of elevation gain on it. But um, we've been working on them, and so we're hoping to kind of expand that. And it kind of dovetails with the forest restoration because it's kind of destructive to get all of those invasive species out. But we're starting to get to the point where we can build some more permanent trails. So you said that your parents, you know, they went into this not you know, knowing too much about it, um, but then they just went for it, which I love. I love that spirit. They were like, we're going to go over this. But uh you know, what What do you think of it now, now that it's panned out pretty well? And how are they kind of, you know, what are they up to? Do they still have a say in it? Are they still around? Do they live in Oregon or are they involved or, yeah. Yeah, so um, both of my parents are kind of semi-retired at this point, but they both live on property. Um, my dad's got a business card that I think says cook and gardener. 
<laughs> so um, he'll cook meals for like wine club. He does a full pig roast for our big pickup party each fall um, and just loves gardening. That's kind of his passion. Um, my mom is like a social butterfly. She's a brand ambassador is her title these days. So they kind of do what's fun and what they enjoy doing. And they're definitely still a huge presence on the property. And I'm really thankful for that. Can you tell me about your cider project? I'll I'll let Joe do that one. Yeah. So we've got a lot of like old like settlement, like the pioneer apple trees on the property still. Sort of. So I think, I mean, there are orchards on the estate in the past, a long time ago and for a long time. And then naturally they've, those apples would hit the ground and they would fall into these ravines and then the water, seasonal floods would come and wash them around. And so that's kind of like what that's kind of mapped like on the estate as far as the apples go. We don't have an orchard for a cider, but we've got a lot of apple trees, I'm guessing, but we've probably got about 40 trees, maybe four dozen trees around the property. Um, but in, for the most part, they're all the Johnny Appleseed a- apple trees, right? So they aren't any, you know, when you plant an apple seed, you don't know what you're going to get, right? So we've got apples that are that look like small red cherries and some that look like yellow potatoes and, and a lot of apples that just don't even resemble them. But And some are bitter and some are acidic. Anyway, um, in... 13, I believe, we made a cider, and then in 14 and 15, we made a, a cider. And I'm close. I don't think I'm pre- precise here, but it's close. And I'm not a cider maker. Obviously, I'm a, a winemaker. And so I decided to go ahead and treat this like like sparkling wine and use the method, traditional ways of going about it. So Basically, I, I know a little bit in that, you know, we did do a, a long sweat on the apples because, again, we're picking basically starch. And so I would store our apples in a stainless steel tank and we would keep it gassed with inert gas so that the integrity remains so. And and slowly we would basically after the grape harvest and our, our primary focus was through, I w- we would start looking at the apples and as soon as they started tasting sweet, um, we would um, pull them out, grind them up, press them off. And then as far as fermentation went, I basically did the primary fermentation in oak barrels, French oak barrels, just like wine. And then did the tirage bottling, just like our sparkling wine. And our current release of apples, the settler ciders, how it's referred to, how we refer to it, is a blend of the 14 and 15, or maybe the 15 and 16 uh, vintages of apples off of the estate that actually just got disgorged within the last year, you know, bottled court cage. So basically that it sat on Taraj for upwards of four to five years. And it's, I'm not a huge fan of apple cider and it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Yeah. And it's not, it's almost like sparkling wine. It's always, you know, with a hint of apple, it's more like, yeah, champagne. It's really fine little bubbles. Uh, So being, uh, big farm and agricultural type project. It sounds like you guys have a really good space for something like field and vine and or farm to table type of dinner. Do you guys do anything like that? Because it sounds like you guys have so many projects going on and so many things to offer that I feel like that would be something fun to go and enjoy at your um, at your vineyard and like in the summer something uh, 
that's different other than just like going into the tasting room or going to the winery, but something that's all of your things combined in like a beautiful, I don't know, stage dinner at the vineyards or something. Any ideas for something like that? Yeah. Historically, um, we used to do a really cool harvest dinner in the vineyards. And then uh, like the rest of the world, we got pandemic and our whole event schedule and 2020 budget got thrown out the window. So yeah, we want to bring that dinner back. We typically do it around Labor Day weekend, right on the eve of harvest outdoors in a pretty vineyard setting. Um, so that would be kind of the best display of that. But then we've also got wonderful private event spaces that are all outdoors that people can book as well. And um, if you know you use our chef, we'll utilize whatever we have locally grown from the garden. You might even get my dad as the cook. You'll see. <laughs> I actually have a question for you, Taylor. Since there seems to be so many different aspects to the farming, whether it's beekeeping, oak restoration, in the vineyard, the livestock, all of that, do you work in every single aspect of the farm? And if so, is there one that you prefer? Do you prefer being with the bees, with the cows, with the <laughs> whatever else you have out there? I mean, I, I've been fortunate enough to work kind of every aspect that we have of the business. Um, lately, I'm not so involved in any of the farming aspects personally. I had like a love-hate relationship with the bees. I like them, but when they sting you, you don't like them so much. I had one get into my suit a couple years ago. There's like a little gap that's like this big, and it's like right here, and I could see it, and I was like, oh. <laughs> They've never made it in before. This isn't going to happen. But he got in and he's like in my beard. Oh. And when they successfully sting you, they release like pheromones that tell all the other bees we like got the intruder. So once that happens, they get way more aggressive. So I like the bees, but they're challenging. I think Joe's had similar experiences too. So, <laughs> so first I got a statement on the awesome job on the oak project. I absolutely enjoy that. And then the second part is towards uh, Joe. What made you become a winemaker, per se? It's been a while. I've been doing this. This has been my entire career. And I, I haven't worked many places, quite frankly. I, prior to Left Coast, was at a winery from, so Left Coast from present time to 10, 11. Um, and then before that, 2 to 10. And then before that, 96 to 2. And I was like 21 then. So actually prior to that though, now it's 22, but prior to that I had a, a, a retail position in wine in Colorado in an area in the Roaring Fork Valley where we sold a lot of really nice wines. And I just fell into that too. Um, um, nowhere near a professional, but I was out there snowboarding. The snow melted and I wanted to stay. And I waltzed into a wine shop with long hair and just this dumb kid, you know, I'm like, Hey, this place is great. Anybody, are you hiring? And, and actually they hired me the very next day. And I stayed there for a couple of two years and really learned a lot about wine there. Of course, you know, the, all the, um, wholesalers coming in and tasting your staff on wine. And actually my employer at the time was a big advocate too of employee education. It was kicking me, us out to different events and one event in particular that got that was kind of the catalyst to get me out here was at uh, the Little Nell in Aspen and it was this uh, marketing campaign that the Oregon Wine Advisory Board had put on 
at the time they were cruising around the nation. I think they like New York, Chicago, Aspen, LA or something like that. And I got to sit and listen and taste and talk and eat and hang out with these winemakers for two days. That's where I learned about Oregon wine. And I had a, the opportunity to taste a lot of wines from all over the world, but those really struck me. And I moved out to Oregon within two months and got a job in a cellar. And it's just, yeah, it's all I know how to do. I'm pretty good at cranking on mountain bikes too, but otherwise, wine. <laughs> I have a question about Chardonnay. You have two different bottlings I saw on the website. Can you tell me about what clones you use and are they different for each bottling and why? The, the Suzanne, okay, the Suzanne's Estate Chardonnay is in a, a tier all by itself. Only other two wines it includes is a, a rosé occasionally and, and Pinot Noir. And we only produce these wines in years that, that justify the highest of quality. And so anyway, to Suzanne's Chardonnay, um, I pick it off of our left bank. It sits at about 400 in 20 feet in elevation. It's east facing. It's got a nice gradual slope. And it's it's really well balanced. I, I never dug around that area, but it's just got a really balanced canopy that seems to top out at the top wire. And it's just really balanced. So, I mean, in wine, we look in balance, we, we, we try to create balance, but the most balanced wine comes from balanced vineyards, canopies. And, um, the clone is the 96 clone. That's a Dijon clone. They're small clusters, small berries. And really, that's obviously the primary ingredient, and it makes a huge difference. In the winery, though, a big difference, too, is the amount of uh, time in wood. So our Truffle Hill Chardonnay is typically released prior to the next harvest, so it gets to age for about eight months. It's in bottle within 10 months of being picked and the Suzanne's is left upwards of 20 to 22 months. And so it's just softer, richer, rounder, still picked at low sugars, low pHs, high acids. So still got that acid drive behind it, but uh, those are the primary differences. Want to thank all of you for not only joining us, but Taylor and Joe for making the trek from Real all the way to McMinnville to, um, I guess to come some torture on questions and things that maybe you maybe hadn't really thought about that were really part of what you do. So I really appreciate all of you for being here. And this has just been beyond enjoyable. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>